Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Dr. Katina Sawyer. And welcome to Thriving at Work, a Worker Being podcast. You can learn more about us, Worker Being, on our website, workerbeing.com. You can find us on our social, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Or you can support our community. You can find more details about our community at workerbeing.com slash community. Today, we're super excited because we are featuring an interview with some amazing guests. We're going to be talking about parental leave with Dr. Amy Beacom and Sue Campbell. Dr. Amy Beacom is the founder and CEO of the Center for Parental Leave Leadership, the very first full-service consultancy in the U.S. to focus exclusively on parental leave. She conceived of and began developing the field of parental leave coaching and consulting in 2006. Um, She actually gets to draw on 25 years in executive leadership development and coaching. She consults with Fortune 100 companies, international organizations, working parents, and more to transform the way that companies and our country engage with parental leave transitions. She is also the co-author of the book, The Parental Leave Playbook, 10 Touchpoints to Transition Smoothly, Strengthening Your Family, and Continue Building Your Career. We'll obviously add a link to that. Sue Campbell is the other individual that helped write this book. She is a writer, an author, and a coach who has worked with the Center for Parental Leave Leadership since its early days of inception, um, helping to communicate the transformative impact of their mission. Her writing often focuses on issues important to parents, and she's been published in a lot of different outlets, including Prevention, Good Housekeeping, Scary Mommy, and Mama Load. So today we're going to be talking about the importance of having good parental leave for working parents. And you can expect these two takeaways from the interview that the interviewees will build more on. The first is that parental leave is not just about policy. It has to go beyond policy. And the second is that parental leave is actually a transition process that requires careful planning. So we hope that you enjoy the show and have a great rest of your day. Hi, we're so excited to have you, Sue and Amy, joining us today to talk about parental leave. Um, So I'd love to just jump right in and ask you, what got you both interested in the topic of parental leave? (laughs) This is Amy. Um, Sue, you want me to start? Yes, please. (laughs) I, um, I did not become interested in any way, shape, or form in the topic of parental leave until I was pregnant with my first child, much like most everybody in the United States. Um, <laughs> before that, I had been doing executive development, leadership, and coaching work, and I uh, was working on my doctorate in organizational psychology and was a consultant around work-life balance issues, as we called it back then, or women's economic advancement, and really thought I was an expert in these areas. <laughs> and then I um, got pregnant, had my first child, and was gobsmacked at how different it was than what I had expected. And especially as someone who worked in this area um, tangentially, was really surprised at how little I knew and how little that meant most everyone knew. Um, And so I, at the time, was working on uh, my dissertation around executive coaching and leadership, and I switched the focus of my work to create a new field that at the time I was calling maternity coaching um, and now call parental leave coaching as we start to um, 
you know, obviously back then, this this was 15 years ago, I should add. My son is 15 and a half at this point. So it was a long, long time ago. There wasn't a lot of conversation <laughs> about parentally. We sort of were expected to go away, have your child come back, fit right back in the way things were before and not really talk about it too much. So that experience and and frankly, how traumatic it was for me is what led me to build this field and to um, start the Center for Parental Leave Leadership in 2014. That's amazing. I, I mean, I'm sorry that it was a negative experience for you when you um, came back from leave and, you know, love to kind of dive into that a little bit further. But I very much appreciate that, you know, you don't always recognize issues and challenges until you're faced with them. So it makes a lot of sense that that's kind of when that sparked an interest for you. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Sue, what about you? I'd love to know how well, you got involved. I had my first parental leave experience also almost 15 years ago. Um, Amy and I have kids the same age, and that's actually how we met. Um, and I was actually working wow. in a human resources department <laughs> for a local government at the time and was like, wow, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, I, I kind of expected, you know, that I would announce and then everyone would be like, oh, here's like a little handbook and here's everything you need to know. And I was waiting for people to tell me how all of this worked. And I got, you know, one little piece of paper that um, had some jargon on it about what kind of leave, you know, I could take and how much time mm -hmm. I could take and the fact that it would all be unpaid once I exhausted my vacation time and my sick time. Um, and so that experience sat with me, um, as did my realization that when you become a working parent, you gain certain superpowers. Um <laughs> And I actually quickly accelerated my career after I came back to work um, through happenstance and opportunities and like my newfound superpowers. And then I met Amy and she, I was also <laughs> writing on the side. So I was working for a government, working on a software implementation project, working on all the human resources, you know, sides of that. Um, and then I was writing freelance writing on the side and Amy and I met because our children started uh, first grade together. And she said, oh, uh, I might need you. Can I buy you some coffee? And then, so we sat down and she told me about her work. And I was absolutely gobsmacked because she was getting to the crux of the problem for me, right? The problem is that we spend so much of our lives at work and work doesn't know how to support us so that we can have some sort of a home life as well um, and have, you know, some sort of recovery time and all, all of those things. And because our country is woefully lacking in paid parental leave, um, Amy saw the opportunity that until we get that federal level policy, the opportunity is in workplaces and to help them understand why they would want to support this time. It's not a parent's problem to fix. This is a systemic issue. And right now our best bet is actually on the employers. So I was sold. I'm like, sign me up. I will help. How can I help? And now we're, you know, seven, almost eight years later, and we've done a ton of work together and written a book together. That is awesome. Um, we're really excited to hear about the trajectory that you've taken because uh, like Patricia said, you know, you you ran into some challenges and found a shared 
sometimes a shared negative experience can create a passion for driving change, right? And uh, and can create a kind of persistence and doggedness of pursuing that change that wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the fact that you have this like strong connection Absolutely. to um, this issue. So um, while, uh, while, as Patricia said, it's, it's not good that you had these experiences, that you were able to turn that into the work that you're doing now is really remarkable. Um, and so, you know, I would imagine, and I'm sure people listening would imagine that you, and you mentioned you had a negative experience. I'm sure that was psychologically, you know, taking a toll, emotionally taking a toll when you realize the lack of support that you were experiencing. Um, from a personal perspective, I think it's fairly intuitive why that might be a problem, uh, and that it should be fixed. But why would it be important for businesses to focus on providing the proper support to new parents? So if I was, you know, a crotchety <laughs> business person and saying, tell me why this is important other than because, you know, you were feeling like this was a challenging time and I don't want you to be personally burdened. What What's kind of the um, importance that, for yeah, businesses here? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and one that I'll, I'll ask. Um it's also evolved over time. So when I, this is Amy talking again, when I first started doing this, it was a lot of banging my head against the wall because people really couldn't understand that, right? That's what happens. That's personal. You, mm -hmm. we don't, we don't want to bring that into the workplace. That's, there's a strict line here between work and home. But as we've changed as a country over the last 15 years, that line has blurred more and more. So that case is much more easier to make. Um, it usually starts with the real basic financial argument of retention and attraction. Um, so you're, one of the things that we know is that that leadership pipeline gets really, really leaky around the childbearing years for women. And it's very, very hard for them to get past that and go up in ranks. And so this parental leave time frame becomes a moment where retention is particularly difficult for women who become parents. Um, unfortunately for dads, it's the opposite. The dads get the little fatherhood bonus and they are seen as more dedicated and more committed to their work, etc. But women are are penalized for it. So that retention issue, when companies start to understand how much it costs to replace um, someone, they pay attention. And that's gotten even louder and more important over the pandemic. So that that's one thing. Um, but then there's the the human side of it as well um, in the case making. So we know retention, we know attraction. We also talk about brand and and culture and what is the employer of the future. But having a healthy workplace, as you two know more than anyone, that workplace well-being is key to a successful um, company that will thrive into the future. And so that um, is a case that we've been making since day one, but it's one that companies are finally hearing differently as wellness becomes more understood and how um, the impact within companies around that becomes more understood and seen and experienced by those companies. Definitely have the experience of seeing um, a little more interest in the, the idea of wellness recently, mm -hmm. especially with COVID. So hopefully all of your great work gets um, elevated because of it. 
I, I just want to underscore something Amy touched on briefly and that there is also a generational shift. So as mm-hmm. companies are trying to attract and maintain millennials mm-hmm. and Gen Z in particular, their notion of what they should be experiencing in terms of benefits and support at work around starting a family or you know anything outside of work is completely different than boomers and Gen X. Um, and Amy and I are both in Gen X. So one of the other you know, persuasive arguments we now have at our disposal is that you are going to have a really hard time <laughs> getting great <laughs> new people from these two generations if you don't step up and get you know, more supportive and proactive about supporting people's family lives. Yeah. Um, and the, this is related, but might not be your specific question. What the way that we see this time frame isn't as a one-way benefit that companies are are giving to their employees. We see this as really a strategic opportunity for that company to train and develop their people, to deepen trust and communication and skill building, and um, really harness this time for what it truly is, which you know I believe is the most overlooked leadership development and human growth opportunity at the disposal of our companies that we just usually ignore. Yeah. So you're seeing this as a competency issue as well. It's not just a, hey, put this policy in place and this is going to help take care of XYZ so that in this moment, people see that as a signal that you care more than you used to. And if anyone has any questions, they can point to the policy and that's about all we're doing. You're really thinking about this as this is something that we continue can continue to grow and learn how to do better. And that will actually fundamentally shift the environment that we're working in such that this becomes a competitive advantage that's sustainable as opposed to an initiative or something that you can point to that's in an HR handbook somewhere. Yep. And, and just for your listeners to understand, I didn't come out of policy land in our country. When people hear the words parental leave right now, they usually are just thinking about policy. Like how many weeks of leave do I have? How much am I getting paid? You know, those kinds of things, but that's not my background. Mine's organizational psych. So I'm thinking about how do we create stronger organizations? How do we deepen loyalty and, um, productivity? How do we make sure we have healthy workplaces? You know, all of those things. And so I focused in on parental leave as a time frame that is very familiar to everyone. And most people, I think it's roughly 80% of employees go through a parental leave transition at some point in their career life cycle. And what that does for the organization is it gives them an opportunity to create a really well thought, robust um, developmental opportunity, a learning experiential learning opportunity over this time frame with those specific skills and um, different ways of working that might be family supportive supervisory behaviors. It may be leave navigation for different types of leave, but whatever they're learning in that parental leave time frame applies far beyond that specific time frame. So it's really a, a way to focus in on something people can wrap their hands around and their head around and is a robust, like I said, experiential learning opportunity, but that really impacts all the way career downstream. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love that you use family supportive supervisory behaviors. We have an episode on that, so I'll link to it for anybody that's interested in that more specifically. Um, Just to be clear, that is not my term. Uh, Ellen, Dr. Ellen Kosick and Dr. Leslie Hammer have wonderful, wonderful research <laughs> on family supportive supervisory behaviors for over the last 10, 15 years with tons of government funding. So those are very specific things, but we also work with them um, in partnership and and some those are some of the behaviors we're training through this time, especially with managers. That's amazing. Yeah, we. I'm pretty sure that the article we talked yeah. about was one of maybe one of theirs. Um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> why wouldn't it be? They are amazing. Um, but yeah, so I think. I mean, it's really interesting that you're using that in your training and just. But to st- take a step back really quickly before we kind of dive into your framework, because I'd love to hear more about everything that you're doing there. Um, but before we get there, you mentioned policy that you're not coming from a policy perspective. Um, obviously, we understand that we're organizational <laughs> psychologists as well. And we policy is like, you know, we can read about it, but that's not what we've been trained in and understand as as deeply as policymakers would or lawyers or what have you. Um, but I wanted to ask a little bit about, like, let's just say in our dream world, finally something passes and we have like a reasonable leave policy in our country. How do you think what you're doing would change or do you think it would just continue to support um, organizations regardless of whether or not there's a policy change? Can I jump in on this one, Amy? Yeah, of course. Um, And then you can round it out if you like. Uh, Because we're so heavily focused on practice and because Amy in her mind, like policy is already a done deal that's going to happen one way or another, whether it's states rolling out, you know, their state level policies or a federal level policy um, practice is really where it's at. That's going to be the differentiator for employees or for, excuse me, for employers, right? How do you stand out when everybody gets the same leave package? Well, you could add on to the policy and be more generous than the baseline, but practice is really where people feel supported and have a good day-to-day experience when they show up to work. So the practice stuff for us, we'd be like, woohoo, we don't have to have policy discussions as much with clients because we still do that. It's often, you know, where people are starting and and what they (laughs) need to talk about first and really get clear on. And then we get to get into the meaty practice stuff and we get to train managers in how to support this time frame. Um, So people, if you're thinking ahead in your organization, you want to get your practice right now because you're going to have all of those attraction and retention benefits when those policies do roll out. If you don't have a policy already. Yeah. And I would mm-hmm. just add that one, um, I think of it almost as not necessarily a hierarchy of needs, but they are a very, they have a dance together, that policy and the practice. And without a clear, well-communicated, consistent, equitable policy, it's very difficult to create good practice. So we really are, as much as I didn't want to become a policy expert, I have had to and we've had to because that is the entry point for most organizations. And you also want to make sure they do it well because you can really mess up a policy and spend years trying to come back from that from real simple things that you don't need to do. Um, and so we usually do enter at the policy conversation and then or whether that's creating a policy for the first time or 
expanding an existing policy, adjusting it to to meet the changing needs within a state. We have two states this week that have just um, are moving into. We've been able to say for many years now we have nine states plus DC that have passed leave, but now we have more. So, um, yay! <laughs> um, but what that means is those are different <laughs> policies and every one of those different states. And so, especially now with so many remote workers, it gets extremely impossibly complicated to navigate all of those laws and stay in compliance with the different states. And it's even more complicated for that new parent who could it's like, get this. I don't want to think about this. Um, so we, we do a lot of work around policy, but that it really helps us set the stage for that practice to come in next. Yeah, I like the idea of policy setting the stage because I think about it kind of similarly to, you know, EEO policy where, you know, we've had anti-discrimination laws in place for, you know, years and years and years and years, but there are still issues around inclusive climate and there are still issues around discrimination. And so um, the idea that, you know, without a policy to fall back on, it doesn't leave employees with this safety net um, and it creates inconsistency, but the policy itself isn't going to create a culture that actually supports. So I really like that um, perspective because I think it's important for people to understand kind of that you can't put a policy in place and just say, check, we're done. And and now we can move forward. Um, So I think that's, I think that's awesome. Now let's like go back to, so we just talked about kind of policy playing sort of a foundational role for um, creating these good workplace cultures. But when you go in and you say, okay, beyond the policy, what is it that we need to be doing to make sure that we're supporting parents as best we can in the workplace? Could you kind of walk us through your framework and tell us what employees can do to make sure they're set up for success when taking a parental leave? Yeah. Sue, do you want to start it? Sure. Um, well, let's talk about the three-phase transition as a starting point, because in the book, we lay out 10 touch points, and I don't think we have time to go into all of them, but we can kind of give you the lay of the land. Um, so, yeah. So that sounds when, awesome. when we think about parental leave in this country, what most people think of is literally the time someone is away from the workplace, right? That's all they're thinking about. Um, and what it really is, is a transition in three phases. It's preparing for that leave, during the leave, moving through the leave, and then returning to the workplace. Um, So this can be actually, you know, 12 months, 18 months, as you find out you're expecting a child, no matter how that child is coming to your family. Um, And you're preparing for that to happen. And then you are welcoming that child. Uh, Hopefully, it is at least three months that you're able to do that. That's not what happens for most of Americans. Um, And then you have that very tricky adjustment phase when you're coming back to work. So what Amy has done has created a coaching framework where a coach can come into an organization, work with that employee and their manager through this time frame and help them through all of these common touch points, right? Everybody's leave is unique to a certain extent, but there are these touch points that everyone experiences. So in the phase one, we have three touch points. First, you have to make your announcement, right? Everyone is gonna announce that they're expecting a child if they're planning on taking some kind of leave. Um, Number two is assess. 
Uh, this is what a lot of people want to skip over because they just want to go right to who's going to take your work while you're gone, right? But you have to slow down and do that mm -hmm. assessment phase, whether you're a manager who's supporting an employee or the employee, um, and you really want to look at what are all of the assets involved in this situation and what are all of the liabilities involved in the situation. And Amy and um, another Amy, uh, Dr. Amy Petlovani and Dr. Amy Beacom have put together the parental leave transition assessment. That is the first evidence-based assessment of its kind that can really spit out this beautiful report that tells you your assets and your liabilities and your pivot points, right? Those things that can go either way. And then you can move into the third touch point, which is creating an action plan that's going to try to leverage all of your assets and minimize those liabilities. So that's, you know, just phase, go ahead. When you're, I was just going to ask, when you're talking about assets and liabilities, do you have some examples of what those might be just so people can kind of Absolutely. imagine what that looks uh, Amy, like? Amy, you jump in on, on this point. Well, it, it might be helpful to understand what we're assessing to answer mm -hmm. that. So the, um, the PLTA, which is the parental leave transition assessment, is built off of transition theory. So we have 30, 40 years of work by um, different academics around transition theory. And um, in particular, Dr. Nancy Schlossberg found that there were four areas of transition that they measured. And that was your situation, yourself. So your situation, what's going on around you, yourself, what are you bringing to the table, um, from your own life and who you are as a person, your strategies, sort of your go-to coping mechanisms, and your supports. What is it around you that gives you support um, in the ways that you need it? And so as part of building my this, this pedagogy and this framework um, around the parental leave coaching and then creating the parental leave transition assessment as part of that, I um, built off of that with her permission <laughs> and um, added in focus that that general idea around transitions onto parental leave specifically and look at um, and then added in sabotages because we know that there's both internal and external sabotages that can come up specifically around a parental leave transition that maybe outside of your awareness or outside of um, your ability to to stop from happening. So that's one of the, that's the fifth thing we measure. And then the sixth one, the sixth S in this sort of success um, system for transition success is what it's called. Uh, you is a suggestions, which is your feedback loop and a way for that organization to hear from their parents about what works, what doesn't work, ways they can improve going forward, and also to support new parents that may come up after you within that organization. So when we talk about assets and liabilities we're, and pivot points, we're measuring what's going on in each of those six areas for that particular new parent. So for example, a situation, um, they may have a really stable home life and they have their, um, uh, you know, their family all around them that really provide support that they find useful and helpful or that would be an asset or a liability would be they've just moved to a new place or they're in the process of moving. They don't have a network of support set up around them yet. Um, you know, things like that. So we're measuring in each of those areas. Awesome. That's super helpful. So you sort of end up with a quotient of like how 
much will you need to do in order to get yourself in a place where you're going to be able to make this work? And then I'm guessing you have some strategies that exactly. Sort of and what the, for the, the cool thing about it is what all this research and transition theory shows us that the more that you can, your assets can outweigh your liabilities, the greater your chance of transition success, however you define success. And so what that coach is doing or what that new parent is taught to do in our book, if they don't have a coach, we wrote this sort of like coach in your hands kind of book, um, is how to look at where they're strong and look at where they have challenges and move. So we're, we're always working to move the pivot points into an asset to strengthen what may already be an asset, make it even stronger and to mitigate those liabilities. So for example, if they, um, that situation where they've moved and they don't have their network around them, that coach or they are working to, you know, or they're working alone or with a coach to, boost up their supports around them. So that may be tapping into a local network of new moms in the Facebook group or getting some meals set up to be delivered during or getting a doula, you know, whatever it is that once you've identified support is a real gap, where can you boost that? Um, and so that stuff is built into the action planning portion of our work, along with the, the regular offboarding work, onboarding it on your return, creating contingency plans, keep in touch strategies in the, you know, for while you're away, those kinds of things. It sounds like I need to be buying this book for <laughs> my life having babies right now. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm like, gosh, I wish I had this, like, I feel like a lot of my ki- friends have had kids maybe four or five years ago at this point. I'm Fourth, like, ah, first, second I wish children, I had fifth children, fifth um, children, it's so funny because yes. <laughs> we always think in this country that, you know, oh, it's your first child. You've got a high learning curve. But we often see it's the second, third or fourth where it gets really, really difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And you really need to spend that time on it then. Yeah. A lot more juggling for sure um, <laughs> once you get past number one. So I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add about the framework. I know you mentioned kind of those three touch points pre-transition is there anything you wanted to share about um what it looks like further on yeah i'd love to just give teasers teasers of the of the the they're all conveniently (laughs) named with a a, a word that starts with an a so i'll just tease them out the the last one in in the first one is actually in the first phase (laughs) is actually acknowledging the transition to parenthood and that's one that in this country we just don't do very well at all like maybe you get a baby baby shower and that's about it um but really taking some reflection time and mm-hmm. what do you want out of parenthood? What kind of parent do you want to be? Um, what kind of relationship do you want to have with your child? Like really that values assessment piece is going to help you so much um, as you transition back into work in phase three. So that's phase one. Phase two, um, the first A of that is appropriately keep in touch. So that is executing the plan that you make about keeping in touch while you're actually on leave or modifying it. We're very big on contingency plans. Um, the next touch need to work, just to clarify for your listeners, not the keep in touch strategy is about really reflecting on what you want while you're away. It's not saying you're supposed to work when you're away, but for some people it can be very anxiety producing to not have that time or that connection where they're checking in. So just really understanding that and being clear 
with your colleagues and with your manager about what it is and in what ways they can be in touch and you'll be in touch over leave or not. Yes. Uh, and then touch point six that is advocate, sense. which is one that's very near and dear to my heart. So it's learning to advocate for yourself, for your child. Um, you know, if you're a manager managing people, how do you advocate for that employee while they're out? How do you advocate for all the members on that team who are covering, right? There's a lots of advocating that can happen during this. And again, it's great practice, right? Great practice for every type of transition and workplace situation. Uh, touch point seven is arrangements for return. So this is all during leave. Um, and now you're going to be going back. So it's time to really uh, get clear about your return arrangements and see if any anything needs to be adjusted. And then phase three, there's four more touch point or three more touch points. We are acknowledging again. So we acknowledge the transition to parenthood, and now we want to acknowledge the transition to working parenthood, right? And just what a challenge that can be. It's not nothing. I think a lot of people don't understand how challenging it is, and so they're really blindsided by that return phase and what it means to be a working parent in this country where it's there's just not the infrastructure to support us. Um, and then touch point nine is adjustment. Uh, and this I think is my favorite as Amy knows of all the touch points because this is where so much magic can happen where you're learning about <laughs> yourself and you're learning to be flexible and you're learning all of these lessons, these leadership development lessons of becoming a parent and adjusting um, what you want and how you how you get it. And then the last touch point is just access to career development, right? Just because you become a parent, it doesn't matter your gender. Um, what do you want that access to ongoing career development to look like and be really proactive about making sure that you get, get what you need to keep your career going the way you want it to? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of really great advice for people thinking about all of these different phases and really breaking it down. I mean, I think that, one of the things that's probably super useful about this framework is that people like to have a plan. And if you go into things without a plan and you're sort of just thinking, well, I'll wing it or I'll navigate it myself, or I have it under control. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't have it under control. Right. Um, the sort of idea that you're following what sounds like a structured sort of process, but also that leaves room for some deviation because yeah. you mentioned contingency plans. Um, and so it feels like, you know, just knowing that you're able to sort of look back and understand what phase you're in, look at what you can be doing to think forward, but also knowing that like just acknowledging that you need it. You talked about acknowledging, acknowledging that you need to have these phases and processes to plan because that also gives credence the idea that what you're doing is challenging, right? Um, if we need, if we need to plan for this in a very structured way and like be prepared for all these changes that gives people, I think the room to breathe, to admit like, yeah, yeah this is hard. Um, and so I appreciate a lot, uh, that you've put so much time and detail and energy into this, uh, sort of planning process and transition process because, I think without without really giving people those tools and without acknowledging that that's something that would even be necessary for folks going through this, people might not be willing to even admit that they need mm -hmm. uh, help to figure even it all know out. No, they do. To your point, you know, like you don't know what you don't know, and so for us to be saying, "Oh, there is all this stuff that needs thinking through," and and um, 
and focusing on this like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> like sometimes, um, and you touch on one thing that I think <laughs> is really interesting is this sort of this tension between um, having a, a plan, rigidity, and the infinite flexibility that's needed for each individual's unique experience. And one, um, so that can often be confusing to folks like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. How am I going to respond to this? My, this child could come any moment, right? Those kinds of things. Um, but what we've found and what we have know from all these years of doing it is by creating that container that the process creates, that's how you're building in that, that infinite flexibility and that possibility for each person to adjust it to their own needs and be flexible in the moment. Um, one of our clients who is an army guy uh, had this quote that he told us when we were explaining this to him one day. And um, he said, oh, it's like, who was it, Sue? Was it Eisenhower? Eisenhower, it? I think. Eisenhower, um, who said, in preparing for battle, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. And I really, I, huh. it, it just rings so true to me because it isn't these plans necessarily that are even going to be enacted. Um, hopefully they will be, but it's thinking through them, thinking through the contingency planning parts of it creating a return before you even leave so that you can imagine it in your mind's eye and work towards it and walk towards it, um, that you really get the gift of the planning. And so it reminds me a lot of, this is going to be a bit of a tangent, but we talk about hope a lot and the way hope is structured in the research as well as uh, the concept of psychological capital. And it feels like there's some components in here around that, right? Because when you are enacting hope when you're practicing hope you are thinking of multiple pathways mm -hmm. to your goal you're trying you have to think about these contingency plans it's not just I have one plan and it's magically going to work out but it's having like there's a there are multiple ways to get to where I want to be and what I want to do and you know the goals I'm trying to achieve um, so it feels like there's quite a bit of overlap in terms of what you're discussing, yes, like yeah. hope Wonderful. is a piece of this. I love hearing you say that. It's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, <laughs> and now I'm going to go and do some more research on the hope, hope research. <laughs> like, I would love to read more about what you're saying. Yeah, well, you have our Katina as our resident hope expert, so we can send <laughs> some stuff along to you. <laughs> and I hope that it will be helpful. Um, but yeah, so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, this, this is all super amazing and we love the work that you're doing. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about so far about you or your work or just in general supporting parents in the workplace that you really want to make sure we tackle before we turn it over to one final fun question? Yeah, I think there is one thing and it's because your work and wellness and, and worker well-being is... Um, one of the things that we don't normally talk about is perinatal mental health in the workplace. And so perinatal, for those who don't know, is that time frame from pregnancy through a year post-birth. And it can be, it's a time frame. It doesn't have to be just for that mom. It could be for wh whatever partner, however they identify it, their gender. Um, so it's that, that time. And what one of the things I'm most proud of is 
how we have been able to integrate perinatal mental health support into all that we do. So I created the first, um, I didn't create the, the, the actual tool. It's a very validated, it's used in all the countries of the world tool to measure perinatal mental health, but we're the first to bring it into a workplace setting. So we have the first perinatal mental health tool to be used in a workplace setting. And then all of our coaches are trained and certified um, from our partner organization, Postpartum Support International, in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and how to identify and look for those. And then we screen at every coaching session. So that is something that um, most people don't think about when they think about parental leave, but is a huge component of it. We have uh, one in five new moms experience a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder within a year, pregnancy through that year and that perinatal time frame. But what most people don't know is that one in 10 dads do as well. And so this is wow. something that's really hitting across the board and often is missed um, or overlooked and is a huge part of why people fall out of the workforce or they feel pushed out of the workforce because they're having these um, really hard things happening. And those aren't, they're not able to bring that into their work at all. And they're ashamed and they're embarrassed and they feel like they're not good enough. And so they, they leave and, and they have a very, very hard time getting back in. So the more we can, um, screen and refer out and get support early, the less that will impact people's lives. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I'm really glad that you're doing that because, you know, we talk a lot about like stigma around mental health at work and, and the challenges around that and exactly what you're saying, retaining people in the workplace because of that, people being able to move through um, their personal experience and their health issues um, to then continue to live a successful functional, productive life. Um, so I'm really glad to hear that you're adding that into what you're doing because that is hugely important. I'm glad people are talking about it more, but you're right. It's still not something <laughs> that we are usually willing to talk about in the workplace. There's so many like stigmas in the workplace. And I think this is one of those. I mean, there's just so much stigma around parenthood, becoming a parent, mm -hmm. everything that of course, this would be part of it. So I'm really glad to hear that you're doing that. That's, am that's amazing. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. And a <laughs> shout out too, also that, uh, there has been more work in the organizational psychology literature that's coming out on postpartum depression. We had a couple episodes um, on that on the show as well. But one of my new colleagues at University of Arizona, Allison Gabriel, has been doing some work on the three M's that have been overlooked in organizational psychology, which is maternity, menopause, mm -hmm. and menstruation. Um, mm -hmm. And thinking about um, these various areas that have received too much short shrift given how much of an impact they have um, on the workplace. And so she's really kind of started a conversation to get people thinking and talking more about, well, what are the implications of these um, time periods on people's lives and how can we create workplaces that actually acknowledge that those things are happening and create more supportive environments. So um, I think it. we're getting better, but uh, <laughs> certainly a far way. I love that. Well. Mm -hmm. I actually just saw, um, an article that there's a company that is going to be implementing a menstruation leave that people that menstruate can have a couple days off each month if they need it. 
I I know. (laughs) I have heard rumors of this, but I have not yet seen it. So please send me that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's it's I I think it's a Silicon Valley company as Mm -hmm. typically, right? Um, There was one. So yes, I will send it. Got it. So that's very fun. Very fun. Yeah. So final fun question, and maybe it's not a super, super fun question, but Katina and I are feeling this very um, personally right now because we are in the process of putting together some research that we want to put into a book. And we know that you've obviously both been involved in writing a book and we know it's a big effort and it can be pretty stressful. So we'd love to get your advice and understand what you did to practice (laughs) self-care while writing your book. We're we're laughing now. We both oh gosh! Because we wrote this book during the pandemic when our children were home <laughs> with, our, with our kids homeschooling. Okay. So not much room for self care. Yeah, that doesn't seem like there's probably a good uh, good answer in there. Although maybe there's something you were able well, to what, pull out. What, what I will say is that I think it's really important when we talk about self-care to really understand it in its broadest mm-hmm. form. So not bubble baths and, you know, <laughs> Netflix or whatever it totally. is, right? Like, um, but that self-care can also be hard things. It can be um, the things that feed us over time. It might not be right in that moment. And for me, writing this book was a dream that I've had since I was, you know, writing a book was a dream I've had since I was little, but writing a book about parental leave I've had since I was working on my dissertation around this. And so getting to do that and getting it to do it with someone who I Mm -hmm. love and who I have, I feel that I was so excited to get to talk to about it every day. And like that part of it, that was my self-care. So when I got Wiley, who's our publisher, reached out and um, asked me if I'd write a book. And I I said, not by myself, I won't. <laughs> um, and, and called Sue and said, Sue, you got to do this with me. Are you up for it? And she's like, are you insane? We're, you know, I, how old was Alma at that Three, point? Three. She was she, four. She has yeah. a younger daughter, too. Um, and so <laughs> and she didn't have a nanny and we're in a pandemic and then she's got the other kid homeschooling and, you know, it's just insanity. And so um, the only way to do it and where that self-care that I, I guess I want to encourage you two to do is find mm-hmm. the fun in it for yourself and through each other. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like that was the self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. And uh, oh, like my that. best self-care advice in general is always get way more sleep than you think you need. Make it a bigger priority than you think it is. Don't ever <laughs> sacrifice it. And that's for new parents <laughs> as well. And that. I'm speaking as someone who has a chronic condition. I have type 1 diabetes. So self-care has to be a part of my everyday existence or I will just feel like crap all the time, right? So it's always, am I getting enough sleep? Am I making the right mm-hmm. choices in my food, you know, the one that I could always do better on is am I getting outside and getting some sort of exercise and movement with my body. So just remembering that books don't have to take over your entire life, right? Plan how, how you want it to fit in what you want it to feel like while you're writing it and really try to cultivate it as an experience, not just an end product. Love this. I love this. 
but totally yeah. do it. Totally this do it. This is amazing. Well, um, Sue is reminding me, I do want to just say that one thing I did that I really loved is I went on a walk with my son every morning. And so that, that made my day. It set it up well. It got me outside to Sue's point and, you know, looking around and seeing nature. So that was really a centering those moments that really matter to you for whatever reason and making them non-negotiable. I just echo that from mm-hmm. Sue. That's awesome. Oh, I love that. Yeah, getting out in nature is a big one. This is great. I mean, this is a selfish, <laughs> fun question for us, um, but it's very encouraging to see two amazing women having done this and come up with an amazing product that I think so many people can benefit from. So I'm really, really excited that we get to share this with all of our listeners, and hopefully we can follow in your footsteps and do something. Oh, I'm sure good you too. will. Yay. Yes, you will. Thank you so, so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. We know our listeners learned a ton. We did too. And thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much to Sue and Amy for joining us and having this really enlightening conversation on parental leave. Um, You can learn more about the organization, the Center for Parental Leave Leadership at cplleadership.com c-p-l-l-e-a-d-e-r-s-h-i-p.com. And the book is also on that site if you want to get more information there and we'll have everything in the show notes as well. And um, want to thank you all for listening again. If you need to reach out to us, you know how to find us. You can email us at contact at workerbeing.com. You can find us on our website, workerbeing.com, on our social media. And of course, you can join our community to continue the conversation at workerbeing.com slash community. Thanks for listening. Thriving at Work is hosted by us, Dr. Patricia Grabarek and Dr. Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Mm-hmm.